0: Hey, welcome back to Toons Toons Podcast. I'm your host, Harold. I have a very exciting episode today. I know I say that a lot, but I was stoked to get an interview with Fred Seibert. You probably know Fred best from his time at Cartoon Network. He helped create and produce a lot of the cartoon cartoons. He spent a lot of time in the 80s helping Nickelodeon set up their programming. He was also the first creative director at MTV whenever they first launched. So I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Check it out. Well, Fred, I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me. Um you know for the uninitiated they probably don't know how big of a hand you had in producing a lot of the things uh from our childhood can you talk a little bit about yourself and your background
1: well i have a very eclectic background um pretty much all in the media business you know i i tell often that i started out in college as a chemistry student and um, 6 weeks in i realized i liked the beatles more than chemistry and a lifelong ambition to be a chemist went out the door. I walked into my college radio station and never left. Um, so much so that I still haven't graduated from college. Um, I started a little record company in uh, at the radio station making blues and jazz records, uh, which went defunct in 1976. And I just revived it for one final release 50 years later uh, that'll come out in the middle of February. Um, I went to work in, uh, as an independent record producer. Then I went to work in country music, radio, making promotion, which through a whole series of things led me to being the first employee of MTV. Uh, from there, I set up my own company with, um, a college radio partner and an MTV partner named Alan Goodman. We became the first branding company in the media business and uh, took on the assignment of Nickelodeon, which helped uh, Nickelodeon go from the worst in the cable ratings to the first in the cable ratings in six months. Um, we helped them invent Nick at Night the and TV Land, the oldies TV networks. And after about 10 years of doing that business, I leapt over to working for Turner Broadcasting, Ted Turner's company. He was the founder of CNN, of TBS, the Superstation, and eventually Cartoon Network. He bought uh, the Hanna-Barbera Cartoon Studios. I um, was president of the studio for five years. We had the first hits that the studio had had since 1981. Uh, when they had the smurfs we launched dector's laboratory johnny bravo courage the cowardly dog the powerpuff girls among others um and when ted sold the company to what is now warner media i started frederator studios worked with nickelodeon where we did um, the fairly odd parents my life as a teenage robot chalk zone eventually uh Brought Adventure Time over to Cartoon Network, Castlevania to Netflix. And then last year, I quit Frederator and started a new company called Fred Films. And here we are today.
0: It's a crazy uh, whirlwind of kind of having your hands in a bunch of different things.
1: (laughs) You know, when you're when you've uh, worked for 50 years and you're less dedicated to one thing than to the winds of popular culture, that's kind of where the wind's brought me over the years.
0: You know, I listened to you in a couple other interviews, and I really resonated with a couple of things and related to, quote unquote, finding your thing. I think me and, you know, a lot of people that I know, actually, it's like hard to figure out, like, what is my thing? Can you talk about that, like uh, finding your thing?
1: Well, you know, um, it sort of goes, I think, in two pieces. Uh, one is being willing to, uh, to be in love with the things that you love. You know, sometimes, you know, there's a, what's the phrase in culture, Uh, guilty pleasures. And what I found over the years, it's often the guilty pleasures that are the real pleasures in life. And then the question is, is can you find a work solution to your guilty pleasures? You know, and there are all sorts of solutions. I was having a talk with A young relative recently who has just graduated from college, she has gone to work in finance because she thought that was a way, she wanted to make money and she thought that would be a way to do it. She interned, it was good. She took a job in finance, hates it. And she called me thinking that maybe she wanted to be in marketing. And I pointed out to her, one, very few people ever dream of being in marketing. You know, and what did she really want to do? And she said, Well, I want to be a surf bum. And I said, Okay, well, so why don't and she? Said, no, 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 I was just kidding. You know, I blah, 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 blah. I think I'd be bored being, I said, Yeah, but you said it because you really like it. So why don't you start thinking about what you really like and figure out, is there a way to live that way? And so I, I think that the first thing is to really be able to settle into the things that are important to you. And then, you know, at least in my case, I sort of stumbled through a number of things looking for the slot. And I'll tell you the most interesting one. Before I was employed, gainfully employed, I had had left college. I didn't graduate. I had a roommate who was nice enough to support me for several years while I was looking for my thing. I thought I wanted to be a record producer, but I was a very voracious reader, and I happened to read a memoir of a famous advertising man, and it was a great experience because it was half memoir, and it was half sort of how-to, and I loved the how-to, but the memoir about being in advertising didn't strike me as good at all, and I said to my roommate, you know, if you ever hear of me going into advertising, please buy me a gun so I can shoot myself. And within a year, I had taken a freelance job at a radio station cutting promotion for them. The guy who ran the promotion department was an advertising expert in media. And I found myself drawn to him. He was sort of a crazy, wacko, lunatic genius. And even though he was a very difficult man, I was drawn to him because he loved teaching people things. And I loved learning things. And at that point in my life, I desperately needed to learn things. And we went through a tumultuous relationship for many, many, many years. Some years we were best friends. Other years we didn't talk for years and years at a time. But he's the person that recommended me to go to work at the company that became MTV, where I became the first employee, even though, one, I had no interest in television. And two, he and I weren't speaking at the time. But to this day, 50 years later, I never go through a day without thinking about something that he taught me and where I can put it to work. So it's a bumpy road finding your thing if you're willing to find it. And I will tell you that um, to now cut this off so that you can ask me another question, (laughs) um, In the process of finding my thing, I have started many companies, and honestly, I've quit three of the most successful companies that I've ever started because they just didn't sort of scratch the itch anymore. And I left a lot of money on the table in the process, but I was very confident with the fact that I was having a good time at what I was doing. I'd probably figure out a way to make some money along the way.
0: Right, yeah, I do think that that's an important thing. You know, as as someone that works at an ad agency, I uh, can really relate to that. <laughs> but uh, was, that, was the book, was it Ogilvy's book by chance?
1: It was. Well, it was such a great book in so many ways that I would say for almost 20 years, I made it must read uh, with my various employees. I actually never worked in an avage, the I only owned one, which was a big difference. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. I stand corrected then.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, well, you know, you'd mentioned working at uh, Cartoon Network, uh, Hanna-Barbera. Um, I had heard you talk about before that you were the first uh, family in your neighborhood to get a TV. Can you talk about, you know, re- what you remember about Hanna-Barbera growing up? Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure, absolutely. So in retrospect, I realized that I first watched Hanna-Barbera Animation, one with Tom and Jerry, and two with Rough and Ready, which was sort of the first thing that they did for network television, which were sort of little shorts, basically. But I wasn't aware of them until the launch of the Huckleberry Hound Show in, I think, 1957, when I would have been six years old. Maybe it was 1958, I don't know, somewhere in there. And I loved Huckleberry Hound. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I loved the theme song. I loved the look of Huckleberry Hound. I didn't mind the fact that whenever he was running across the screen, the same tree showed up over and over again. Um, Pixie and Dixie, the second cartoon of the three, was fantastic. And, of course, Yogi Bear which was the original third cartoon in the mix was great. Uh, I always say that in many ways, the Huckleberry Hound show was sort of like the Beatles of television cartoons, because it was the first super, super, super popular cartoon made explicitly for television. But I followed all of their stuff from then on. I, um, I watched the Quick Draw McGraw show, eventually Yogi Bear, spun off, you know, into his own show. Magilla Gorilla was one of my great favorites. But of course, the explosion of all things Hanna-Barbera was the launch of the Flintstones in 1960 when I was nine years old. And between all of that, that run, I started fading a little bit with the Jetsons. You know, by the time Scooby-Doo came, I was out. You know, because I had already discovered the Beatles and girls, but that run from the mid 1950s, pretty much to the mid 1960s was so impactful to me. That. Honestly. uh, When I started traveling to Los Angeles for work and I would drive by the Hanna-Barbera building. I would sort of get like a little chill every time i pass by wondering what went on in that building
0: it would be kind of a trip for sure especially if you grew up watching this stuff to then go on and be a part of that thing being the next generation's influence you know what i mean i uh i just spoke to david feiss that uh created count chicken i'm sure you know him very well and you know, we talked about this at large too, like Hannah barbera was such an influence to him. To me, it's just such a cool spot for you to be in that you have now gotten into the spot where you could produce the thing that would influence the next generation.
1: Here was the magic and the craziness. The first time I set foot in the building, I was president of the company. It was the weirdest thing ever. And I will tell you honestly, two interesting things. One is I was so scared of being the boss because I didn't know anything about cartoons. I didn't even sit at the desk in my office for six months. I just sat on the couch staring at the desk because even the desk intimidated me. It had been Bill Hanna's original desk. It had been custom built for him. It was so big that I always used to joke that it could sleep a family of four. It just made me nervous just to be in the office. I kept trying to give Bill his office back and he wouldn't take it. The second thing is I walked in the door and the only thing on my mind were those classic characters. I was determined to revive the classic characters. And in a certain point within, I don't know, probably the first six months that I was there, two things occurred to me. One is it's a fool's errand to try and revive characters. Certainly, unless you like fold spindle and mutilate them so much, you know, like the new Yogi Bear show that Warners did, which is completely different or what, um, well, it's not a Hanna-Barbera or what they did with Teen Titans, for instance. But so on one hand, I was sort of stuck because I realized that the idea of revival was not a great idea. And secondly, that the idea of being the next generation was like the big win and the big excitement. And the fact that I was part of that really, you know, is one of the great highlights of my life.
0: Some of the ingenuity, too, I I really admire. Um, I I feel like, you know, hearing that you're kind of around the ad space, you sound like you have a mind for advertising because of the ingenuity. Um, talking about, um, you know, I was was just telling you about David Feist. He was the benefactor of your idea. He uh, pitched cow and chicken through your idea. Isn't that correct?
1: Yes, but I was the benefactor of him. I mean, he was the benefactor to me, right? He um, was a guy who had grown up with Hanna-Barbera the same way that I did, but obviously he has skills and talent that I'll never have. And we initially brought him in to do. We we were doing a show called Two Stupid Dogs, and the creator of Two Stupid Dogs, the format we we looked at was a three cartoon format. You know, just like the old Hanna Barbera stuff. And uh, Donovan Cook, who is the creator of Two Stupid Dogs, decided that the middle cartoon should be a revival of a cartoon character that Hanna Barbera had done back in the day. And he picked Secret Squirrel and uh, called it Super Secret Secret Squirrel, had it redesigned um, by a couple people on his crew. And we just handed the idea of Super Secret Secret Squirrel to David and everything else he did. He complete, and he made a fantastic cartoon, which made me know that like, before even he came in with Cow and Chicken, that I was gonna like what he did.
0: I I do love the idea of that, you know, it was out of necessity, almost, that, you know, you came in and you were like, how can we basically in volume try to get the most ideas and you know, having it be on art boards, not just words on paper, like, hey, actually show me what your idea is. Like, I think that's a really great idea.
1: Well, that came from a guy that uh, Dave had worked with uh, named John Chris Felusi, who had created Ren and Stimpy. And I really didn't understand how cartoons were made. And I wasn't going to go about it that way. But one day I was having a lunch with John and he said, you know, only artists can write cartoons. Writers can't write cartoons." You know, and he used to have a sign in his office that said, if you can't draw, you can't write. Wow. And so the, the whole notion of focusing on artists who could create their own stuff was inspired to me by John. And, you know, over the years, I think I've been, I've produced probably 250 shorts. And I would say at least 240 of them were created by artists.
0: It's the best way to get the idea fleshed out for sure.
1: If you read the words, character A flattened character B on the ground, there's nothing funny about that. What's funny about it is what does character A look like when he's going after character B? And what does character B react to character A in the process? What does the flattening actually look like? is it a hammer that comes down on his head or does character a's hand expand dramatically like you know ridiculously and sort of slowly brings him down while there's a funny sound effect playing i mean the words he flattened the character on the ground don't tell you anything and and that was the lesson that i learned in that process which is i really wanted to see how the films were made not how the dialogue ran.
0: I imagine producing a lot of these things, working with creatives, working with artists, writers, everything, there's probably moments where conflicts arise. Can you maybe talk about a time you had a problem or a time something went wrong, kind of how you navigated that?
1: Well, you know, there's a million things that go wrong, you know, thousands of times. But I think that, like any process at all that's collaborative, it becomes a collaboration. First of all, I sort of took the position and always have taken the position that the creator is always right. Because, you know, I I started my career really making jazz records and I was, you know, a 25-year-old white kid from the suburbs of New York working with 30, 40, 50-year-old black Americans who were world-class to begin with. And had forgotten more than I would ever know about jazz. And like, what was I going to tell these people? Right? Like the most I ended up telling, I, I told most of them, well, we have to record 40 minutes of music to fit on a final album. And one day I asked a guy not to have bass solos in his thing. He got really mad at me. I said, oh, okay, okay well, i have bass solos. And we got a Grammy nomination for that record. I learned that, I, that my opinions were just one more opinion. And I had to be very careful about them because, you know, there was a famous jazz musician called Miles Davis. And he said, you know, in jazz, there are no mistakes. And what he was saying is if you hit a note that you might think is a wrong note, it's not a wrong note until you find out what you did afterwards. It's kind of like, you know, somebody throws the basketball to you, and it starts to fumble. It's only really a fumble if you drop the ball. But if you fumble it, and then all of a sudden you get a good dribble going and you get to the basket and shoot, it wasn't a fumble at all. And that's the same thing with um, with filmmaking, which is it's up to that creator to understand what are the things that are necessary to make the film work. And I might not see it that way, and so I have to back off. On the other hand, I've had disagreements uh, on occasion with um, with creators. Um, the first short of the Fairly Odd Parents, I didn't say anything. Butch Hartman is a brilliant filmmaker on his own. He made the short, and I looked at it afterwards, and I said, "Okay, Butch, here, just two comments. You can do with them what you want." Timmy, who was the star, and Vicky, who was his babysitter. They both have the same color orange hair. Wouldn't that like imply to me that they were brother and sister not babysitter and babysitted? It was like, "Oh yeah, he made Timmy's hair brown." Not a big deal, but he could have said, you know, "Screw you, I'm going to keep him red, you know, that's fine." The second thing I said, "Well, you know, this is all about a boy getting, you know, wishes." I said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, I know when I was a kid, and I heard about a story about somebody getting wishes, I never understood why the last wish wasn't, I want as many wishes as I can ever have. If it's magic, can he just sort of magic his way out of any problem forever in a day, instead of asking the fairly odd parents, fairy godparents? And he said, oh yeah, you're right. And he invented the book called The Rules, right? Where there were rules of magic that his fairy godparents gave him. So for me, you know, we had some of the same things on Adventure Time. I've sat down, I've talked with people, I have my point of view, and then it's really up to them. Because frankly, the cartoon is not gonna succeed or fail on my opinions. It's gonna succeed or fail on their executions. And so in the end, it has to be in their hands, no matter what it is I have to say.
0: Right. And I think you have a good approach, you know, just working with creatives in general, having an idea of what could change or knowing what direction to go. Um, one of the things that chills me to the bone with like, you know, just professionally, like with a client is if they say, I know it when, I'll, when I see it. So I think that's a great approach, though, is what I'm saying. Like whenever you feel like you can add to it and help them navigate through it, you step in and I think that's just a good way to approach it. It's like someone doing a puzzle. You're coming up and you're at fresh eyes and you're helping them see the missing piece. Talking to you is probably one of the most fitting interviews I could do because shows tunes tunes. And I started the entire show just to talk about uh, animation and music. And not only did you have that animation, you know, kind of scope of your career, uh, you also were on the ground floor there at MTV, um, as their first creative director. Um, I know you probably get asked this a million times, but can- <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit about, uh, the logo coming together for, for MTV. How did that kind of happen?
1: So, um, as, as I've said, I, I was one of the first employees, maybe the first employee and, I uh, got the gig and at the time. I had just started to become aware of what graphic design was, something I'd never heard of. But I was dating a woman who went to Cooper Union, um, majoring in what she called commercial art, because I think that's what they kind of called it at the time. And she was reading a book that she thought was great, which is a memoir, the first memoir from one of the most famous graphic designers of the 20th century named Milton Glaser. And uh, so I started reading the book, too. And I was introduced not just to the notion of what graphic design was, but to how Milton solved problems. And I thought it was amazing, especially you know, in his generation. He just passed away at 90 years old. He came up not only when posters were a big thing for advertising, magazines were a big thing for advertising, But he came up in the era of the 12-inch vinyl LP album. And he was an album designer, among other things, which is what my particular interest was, because I was a music freak and and a pop music freak. And so he showed all of his ways to solve the creative problems of various albums and rock posters he had done. And so I was mesmerized with the idea of graphic design. And when I started a record company, one of my missions was like um, design, figuring out all the covers, which I knew nothing about. I literally had to buy a book about like what a layout was. And I didn't know what typesetting was, you know, all that type of stuff. And and if you look at my early album covers, you can tell that I didn't know what any of these <laughs> things were.
0: Um, They're just avant-garde.
1: Right. So fast forward, I get the j- job at MTV. And after I had gotten it, I left my boss's office. I walked back in his office. I said, hey, by the way, like, who's going to do the logo for this thing? At the time, it was called the Music Channel. Is it going to be the corporate creative department? And he looks at me like funny. He goes, well, we both know that they're idiots. So why don't you just take care of it? I'm like, all right. Wow, I get to, like, come up, you know, like, develop the logo. So my first thought was, I'll call Milton Glazer, because he was the guy, right? And then two things struck me. We were a startup. You know, we were the equivalent of what you hear about startups now. And we had almost no budgets for anything. And I thought, gee, you know, if I go to Milton Glazer, he'll probably charge me $10,000 just to walk in the door. And I, I don't have a budget to do that. And secondly, if I go to Milton Glazer, he'll get all the credit. And boy, you know, I'd like a little credit in this mess too. So I thought about it and I thought about my oldest friend. Uh, When I was four years old and I moved into my suburban neighborhood, the first kid I met in my backyard was my backyard neighbor named Frank. Frank was five years old. He was, you know, much older than me. And I found out very quickly that Frank was the son of two artists. And already at five, he was starting to show his talent as an artist. At the time, it was model airplanes. And the model airplanes that he made at five were better than I could make at 70 years old. You know, I mean, he he was already making them beautifully. And when the Flintstones came out, he started drawing pictures of Fred Flintstone on sweatshirts and selling them to us in the neighborhood because he was such a good illustrator. And when I was in junior high school, him being a year older, he was the guy that introduced me to all the new bands and all the new records. It's from him that I found out who the who were, or who the Beach Boys were, or who the Monkees were, or who the, you know, Mothers of Invention were. You know, he was a music freak before the idea of music freaks came up. So Frank had gone to art school. He was now working in New York. In fact, he worked for a friend of mine. I had helped. I actually helped him get his first job out of college. And I called him up and he said, well, you know, I just started a small graphic design company with two friends. Will you come down and talk to us? I said, yeah. So I went down and I said, look, we're going to start this rock and roll television channel. Do you guys want to design the logo? And they're like, yeah. And they started without either been asking me how much I would pay them, which they're still mad about all these years later, because I never paid them too much. And we were about a year away from starting the channel. In fact, it was along the way that the name changed from the music channel to MTV. I think by the time we were done, we probably designed and rejected 500 logos. And the very last one that we said yes to is the M that you know of now. So I said yes. And two things happened. One is I said, you know, we need to come up with the colors. Because at the time, the traditional view of a logo was not only was it designed, but it had official colors. I always talk about, like, you know, the crest toothpaste box where there's, you know, each word, each letter in crest is a different color. Well, they're always the same different color, you know, on every box. And, and I said, and can you just sort of send me a finished board of what the logo kind of looks like? So next thing you know, I get a package with about 10 or 15 different versions of the logo in different color combinations. And the second thing I got was a little board with uh this is before computers uh there were little overlays there was the basic m tv and there were all these overlays and overlay number one is for the heavy metal show and the number two was for the punk show and number three was for the new wave show and number four was for the RB. and i call frank and i go frank we have no shows all we're running is music. There are no shows. I mean, you said, oh, well, okay. You know, I did them. So I'm trying to figure out the colors. And I will tell you, you see me now, I'm wearing a white button down shirt. I wear a white button down shirt every day to work because I'm so bad with color. And so I'm staring at all these things for weeks and weeks and weeks, not being able to make a decision. They all look good to me. Finally, we had to commission the first Animation. We only had like six or seven weeks left, and it took 10 weeks to make the animation. And I couldn't figure out which logo to give them that would be the logo. And I went back to Frank's set of overlays with all these different logos. And I said, You know, we're not putting a logo on the side of a building, we're making a piece of video moving pictures, the definition of video and film are moving pictures why don't we just use all the logos all the time we'll just always have logos doing all sorts of different things just like frank said on this overlay but instead of one at a time we'll just like zoom a bunch of them together and sure enough the first piece we made i I don't know how many logos was in it but every one of them was one of frank's overlays
0: wow that's awesome i know that i know that video that that logo animation you're talking about
1: yeah it's crazy but there it was because we had so little time left that the animators didn't have time to design anything themselves so they just took all of frank's and used those
0: you know just hearing you talk through these different facets it's obvious to me that you know you've been around a lot of really smart people and have been able to absorb from them can you maybe share some of like To you some of the advice that you think has helped you the most um just you know on the day-to-day like find your thing type of thing
1: well i tell you i you know there's too much advice to share because as i said i just i'm overwhelmed with mentors who taught me all sorts of things but here's the thing i realized and i was almost 60 years old when i realized it because i could never figure out what i did for a living right i wasn't really a graphic designer I wasn't a graphic designer, what am I talking about? I wasn't a graphic designer. I had stopped being a musician when I was 20. Uh, I had never studied filmmaking, you know, I like learned on the job. Uh, I can't write to save my life. It's painful for me to write an email. And yet I was supervising all these people that did all those things. And I realized that the the thing that changed my life was becoming a fan of the Beatles when I was 12, when they came to America in 1964. And I realized that the greatest work that I had done, that I had been involved in, that I had been near, was when I found a creative person or a creative group to be a fan of. And that what really, find my career and the work best is I was just a professional fan. And in many ways, I would go to one of these people I was a fan of and go, how can I help you? And that has really kind of defined everything that I've done all the way through these 50 years of work. And hopefully will prepare me for another round until somebody decided I need to be put out to pasture.
0: Uh, well, you, you'd you mentioned at the beginning, Fred Films, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about what you've been up to, man? Maybe some things that are um, that you're excited about or on the horizon, things like that?
1: Well, I'm not going to tell you anything specifically on the horizon, only because they're on the horizon and they might never happen. You know, uh, the business that I'm in, it's in its own way, not unlike your advertising with your clients, is I serve we serve at the pleasure of our partners and those partners could be networks they could be streamers uh, they could be financial partners you know and it's never a yes until it's a yes and usually it's a no but what usually people say to you know somebody asked me the question the other day like well you know what do you see going forward in your career and what haven't you accomplished and all and i have a very glib answer which is i want more better right you know if you work in creative fields unless you become satisfied it means you're always kind of unsatisfied and you always want to do the next thing and the great thing about being a fan is there's always the next person to be a fan of and so what you hope is you're going to make some more fandoms make some more shows more films and then you hope they're going to be better than the ones you used to make because there's always a chance for it to be a little bit better so more better is the way that I kind of look at things and what that means is that i always have my eyes and ears open for the next person you know um probably some people would have looked at your podcast and said, well, you know, Harold doesn't really have that many people listening and it's not that big. It's not as big as the other one that you did and all that type of stuff. And I said, well, look, you know, I make it an art of faith to talk to anyone who wants to talk to me, not just because you're nice enough and flattering enough to want to talk to me, but because, you know, I'll probably get something out of this conversation like you are. I'll walk away and in the process of having talked to you, I will have thought about something a little bit differently than I maybe thought about it two hours ago, which is fabulous. If I get an email from an 11-year-old, I'll answer the email and I'll answer it as seriously as if it was, you know, one of the people calling me from Netflix. one of the best days I've had in several years, a few years ago, I get an email from a guy whose name I don't recognize. And he said, look, you know, you probably don't remember me. Uh, my name is whatever. And I just graduated from the College of uh, the Savannah College of Art and Design in animation. And I want to tell you that I, I went to do this because when I was 11, I wrote you an email and you answered me back. Wow. I'm a dad of of two sons in their 20s. And you know, pretty much ever since I had kids, I'll cry at anything. And boy, was I crying when I got this email. It, it, you know, it it made it all worth it. You know, because you just never know. And I sort of go about all of this stuff, and I try to encourage the people that I work with to go about it going. You never know. There's a um, a famous book in um, in Hollywood history that was part memoir, part how-to by one of the most famous screenwriters. He did, um, probably the thing you'd know that he did the most was The Princess Bride. His name's William Goldman. He was one of the most highly paid screenwriters of his generation. And in his book, the most famous thing that came out of the book was a chapter heading. And the chapter heading said, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. And I thought to myself right away, well, boy, oh boy, I'm at the front of that line. I go about this from the perspective, hopefully as a viewer, as a fan, as the kid that I once was, as the professional that I've become, And at every stage, I try to be open enough going, I don't know anything, what's this feel like? And move from there. And that's the most that I think any of us can do. People who think they know things, they're a bore. They're like a total bore. And I have no idea what agency you work for or what your bosses are like, but any of your bosses who tell you that they know something, they're full of, when it comes to advertising nobody knows anything
0: that's right well and you know the thing that in advertising people fall into is uh you know it's probably in your field too man um when you have an idea and someone says uh that's not been done before like that that's not what we do you know what i mean and it's like we can't do that because it's not been done and it's like that's the perfect reason to do something
1: So let me tell you an interesting thing. So my first job in television wasn't for MTV, it was for that company. They hadn't started MTV yet. I worked for something called the movie channel, which is still around. It was the first 24 hour all movie channel. And my job were the, you know, the interstitials between the movies. So I'd come up, I learned from my mentor that one Any piece you made could only have one idea. You couldn't start throwing a million ideas in there. And the second thing is like, try and tell it in a way that like makes people interested, excited, surprised, you know, whatever it was. So I'd go in with my idea to my boss and he goes, oh, we can't do this. I go, why not? He goes, well, HBO doesn't do it. Or CBS doesn't do it. And I'd go, but we're not HBO or CBS. He goes, yeah, but they're like, they're them. And look, we're nothing. You're like, we got to be like them. And I would walk out really annoyed, angry, and depressed all at once. So a little while into my job, the MTV thing comes up and I go in and I convince him that he ought to hire me to be work on MTV because I, for whatever reason. And he says, yes. And I walk out and I walk right back into his office. And I said, hey, you know, Bob, just one thing. So what's that? I said, look, I don't care if you don't like my work. It doesn't matter to me if you think it's a bad idea. I'll stop. But you can never, ever tell me that I can't do it because someone else isn't doing it. He goes, why not? I said, well, nobody's doing what we're doing with MTV. We're the first one in the world. Said, you know, you're right. And he never, ever did it again. Wow. And that was the way at MTV that me and my team, my creative team, could sort of reinvent a bunch of the rules of television. Because we were the first ones doing something. And we could start with a blank piece of paper and go, what would we wish television would be like? Not how do we become part of what everyone else does in television? Right. That's amazing.
0: Fred, man, I really do appreciate your time. Can you tell people where they can uh, keep up with your projects, follow you on social media, all that good stuff?
1: Yeah, um, my website for Fred Films is fredfilms.com. My Twitter handle is Fred Seibert, one word, F-R-E-D-S-E-I-B-E-R-T, spelled almost the opposite of the way it's pronounced. Uh, I have a personal website, which is more like an archive thing, called fredseibert.com, and I guess that's it.
0: Thanks for tuning in for that interview with Fred I Hope you all enjoyed it. As always, follow us on social media. That's Tunes Tunes, Podcast, T-U-N-E-S slash T-O-O-N-S. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. See you.